Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Hope you had a good weekend. Before we jump into today's episode, which I'm very excited about, I wanted to make uh, you aware that the last episode we played on Thursday with Amy Begg, it was a revisited episode from a handful of years ago. Um, but what I didn't mention in the intro is that Amy actually has passed away. Uh, she was involved in a skydiving accident a couple years ago, back in 2019. And uh, yeah, I, I didn't mention that in the intro, and I meant to. And so we did mention that on Instagram, but forgot to mention it in the intro. She lived an incredible life, 33 years old, and absolutely lived life to the fullest, and has touched thousands, countless lives, honestly, in all the amazing adventures she'd done. Very experienced skydiver, had done 800 jumps, so it is very sad that she is no longer with us, but I wanted to mention that as I did not mention it in the intro, the last episode. Going into today's episode, we're talking to Carlos Rodriguez Bernard. There's a lot going on here, so I'm going to take a couple minutes. This is going to be a little bit longer intro than normal. Uh, What's going on here is I'm born and raised in Florida, Florida in the United States for anyone listening outside the U.S. And I got was getting into mountain biking in college, and a lot of my friends and I wanted to do these long bike trips. That's kind of my entire introduction into adventure sports was, was bike packing and bike touring. There wasn't a whole lot of that going on here in Florida. There was one person, however, who was kind of the go-to person that was building all the routes, creating all the systems, like basically the entire culture of bikepacking in the area revolved around this singular person, like the son of the bikepacking solar system. And that was Carlos. And his name was just permeated through all the conversations we had, Carlos this, Carlos that. Well, I finally got to meet Carlos about 10 years ago. Um, on the Tour Divide, the bike race from Banff, Alberta, Canada, all the way to Mexico on the uh, the Continental Divide route. And what I love about Carlos's story is it wasn't it wasn't that bike tour that really just you know tickled his fancy. It was route building and building routes. So to train for this crazy adventure, he started building all these routes in Florida, a place that he had grown up in. And what Carlos began to realize is that the middle of Florida, basically everywhere away from the coasts, was so wild and so beautiful and filled with all these natural treasures that he never knew and and a lot of Floridians don't know exist. A lot of people just think it's beaches uh, and Disney World and that's it, but there is so much more to it. So as as Carlos began to build these routes, uh, he began to take more people and discover more things and realized there was this, this amazing interconnectedness of it all. And simultaneously, um, for years, biologists and scientists had also recognized this, this connectivity of Florida and realized that so many of the unique animals here in Florida that use this peninsula shape of the state to, to literally migrate up and down and travel, as well as birds that fly up and down, uh, and, and all the water quality issues in Florida and all the animals that also come along with that water, all started with this interconnected network of green land. When you get away from the coast in Florida, um, you know, it's really built up there, condos and beaches and, you know, and towns all right there along the coast. But if you get inland, it's all rural, you know, farmland, ranch land, citrus, green spaces, literally like national parks and state parks, wilderness areas. And those animals in in the wildlife use all of that land that I just mentioned to travel, to migrate. And so developing this thing called the Florida Wildlife Corridor is the effort to protect all of that land. It is a huge, massive swing for the fences type effort that protects 18 million acres going from the Everglades, which is the southern tip of Florida, all the way up to the Georgia and Alabama line. So it is an 800-mile stretch of interconnected land that basically creates a superhighway for nature to exist and to thrive and to uh, not get isolated in these little pockets of wilderness here and there surrounded by houses and development. So the good news is about half of that land 10 or so million acres is already protected. The bad news is about 8 million of it still needs protection. And what Carlos began to see is that he could ride his bike throughout all this land, see it all, and see how it connected. So he started bringing tons and tons of people on these trips, planning these amazing trips through the corridor. And he realized as he fell more and more in love with this place, he got a lot of other people too as well, including myself in a lot of ways. So His work is a big part of why I'm even doing what I'm doing today. And what's cool is the organization that has been put in charge to make this thing called the Florida Wildlife Corridor known to the world is called Live Wildly. So Carlos is a Live Wildly 
wild Floridian. Because what we realize is just when you, when you just show people something they don't know exists, they begin to love it. They begin to want to advocate for it. I don't know about you, but every time I go out in the woods now or go camping, I don't just enjoy it like I used to. There's this sense of I need to do something to help ensure this kind of experience exists forever. And so maybe in my early 20s, it was more like, yeah, just go have fun, do the coolest thing possible. One, it's really enjoyable. It's fulfilling. Two, you know, it looks cool. But really now it's it's go out there, experience these places, but, but do everything you can when you're not out there to help protect them. Uh, but the biggest catalyst to helping other people join you in that fight is getting them out there just to see it. Carlos is doing that work. Uh, I'm doing that work, and even if you don't live here, this system and this idea still applies to you because if Florida can build a thriving wildlife corridor, any state, any country in the world can. So that's my connection to Carlos. That's my connection to the Florida Wildlife Corridor and Live Wildly, Um, and that's why I'm so passionate about adventure sports and how it intersects with conservation and protecting these places that we go out and have adventures. So Thank you for indulging me on this very long intro, and uh, let's go ahead and get in the conversation. Yeah, man. So, so you know, something I always got to ask, where's home for you? And then also where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about that. Currently, I reside in DeLand, Florida, um, which is a very special place to me. I love this little town. If you've never had the opportunity of visiting Deland, Florida, I highly recommend it. I call it the unofficial bikepacking capital of Florida. I guess unofficial because it's not official because Florida bikepacking is everywhere, right? I grew up in a town called Deltona. I moved to Deltona um, in 1978. Came straight from Puerto Rico to, to Deltona. I was seven years old. So to me, uh, Deltona and uh, Central Florida area is home. It's where I've spent my youth, uh, cut my teeth in nearly everything I've ever done in my life. Um, was right here in Florida. I absolutely love this state. I don't think uh, I would challenge anyone to be a bigger Florida fan than me. Honestly, oh, okay. I, the yeah. challenge is out there. Challenge accepted, dude. If you think you're a bigger Florida fan, send it. Come, let me see what you got. Yeah, hey, I absolutely man. love this place. Oh man, I. I... I love to hear this. And for folks that listen, most, so most of our listeners are out West, Colorado, California, uh, Texas, a lot in New York too, but you know, here in the States, uh, in, in Canada, Florida is so underrated. I know we could just salivate talking about Florida the whole time. I, I I'm from a similar town like Deland. It's instead of North of Orlando, it's similar, just South, like direct, almost the same distance, you know, smaller and yeah, grew born and raised there old Florida in a lot of ways and probably didn't understand just how cool it was. But, you know, what, what did you grow up doing? I know you were big into skateboarding. Um, did you at all understand just kind of like in between all the towns and all the pavement and all the skate parks or whatever you were into, all this awesome stuff was happening? No, I was kind of just living my life. Um, I guess I've always been fascinated by uh, moving under your own power. I find it fascinating to cover distances by my own energy, you know. I guess I, from an, from when I was just a, s- a small kid, I just fell in love with uh, living off my board. Like I would spend my entire summer just living off my board, not literally eating and sleeping, but spending my entire day, you know, my waking hours out. And then my mom, God bless her heart, she is the sweetest woman in the world, was just so comfortable with giving me the freedom to explore my surroundings uh, on foot and on on wheels. And that kind of just carried over into my adulthood and um, just kind of grew and grew. And I was always, I guess, uh, fascinated by maps. And I noticed pretty quick on some things that maybe the average person doesn't notice, and this will be helpful for them when they do look at maps. But what they do when you're looking at a map is they identify the green spaces. So if you look at a map, the areas that are considered public land and um, coincidentally part of the wildlife corridor are green. Um, Not only that, but if you even look even deeper into the map, they actually name separate areas, just not in the green spaces, but in the neighborhoods. Like specifically the neighborhood I live in Deland is called Pine Hills, which is weird. 
But if you look, you'll see these names on the map of every little neighborhood has a name, which is really odd. So I, I recommend everybody do that and you'll start kind of like bugging out, looking at how, why, why did they name it this? You know, I, I think I understand why they named this neighborhood Pine Hills, but uh, it's just interesting little things I noticed. And, and I became fascinated with just kind of connecting those dots uh, with, the, with the sole purpose of creating um, routes for me to prepare to ride the Great Divide mountain bike route where we actually met the first time. You traded in the skateboard for a bike as when you became an adult. Just I, I read that it was you know it was lower impact. You know a lot of us, a lot of the people that listen to the show and have been on the show, they start out like maybe a traditional sport or or some of those like they start off BMX. Uh, my good friend Ben Myers that you know he lives around me and he's he's a BMX rider and he traded that in for a gravel bike when he got older and now he rides a ton of your routes. We talk about you all the time, man. So you traded in the skateboard for the bike and you wanted to, you read about this thing called the Great Divide mountain bike route. Was it the Tour Divide at that point? Was it a race? And if so, like what, was that your first year? The one that we met, that was 2013 that I did it. Well, that was my second time up there. Oh, second time. Dang, mm -hmm. man. So, so tell me about finding out about this route. Cause I mean, it's unreal. It was, um, it might've been outside magazine. It was in a, um, an article that, that they had done on John Stamstad when he decided to time trial the route. Um, that's what I read. And what I, what I think what fascinated me about the route was that it seemed completely crazy. Like you're going to ride 2,700 miles self-supported. It seemed absolutely insane. Like normal people don't do that stuff. Right. And I think that's what fascinated me by it was the fact that it felt, it felt like such an insurmountable challenge was what drew me to it. Like, you know, again, being a person who just fell in love with seeing the world, you know, be a human power, this majestic big route covered by my, my, by my own power and my own devices just fascinated me. And I, but I realized that in order to complete this route, I had to understand the fine art of bikepacking. And um, because I live in Florida, I, I believe um, that the only way I could prepare was by you know, creating these opportunities for me to train at the process. So I started bikepacking in Florida as a necessity to prepare to ride the Great Divide mountain bike route. My my route was trained for an Ironman, which part of it was applicable, part of it wasn't. I wish I would have done more actual bikepacking. Um, yeah. But my background was bike touring on pavement. So that was like, I thought that would be pretty transferable. And then mountain biking with Jordan and all that did help, but you, you found almost this new passion. So as you prepared for the tour divide, the great divide mountain bike route that takes place pretty much, I think it's the first or second Friday of June every year or Saturday of June every year. Uh, and you ride from Banff to Mexico, Banff, Alberta. We've had a ton of people on this show. Like the win we, a lot of, for a while we interviewed the winner every year of the tour divide. And that has been a huge influence on this show. And the reason it was even created uh, but when you started training, you started making routes in Florida because there's nothing else. There's a lot of sand in Florida. So there are some great places to train. Had you been that familiar with some of those green spaces in Florida you were talking about earlier, or was it still kind of unknown to you at that point? Um, I had been cross country mountain biking for a while. And then in my, um, and then before I even got into cross country mountain biking, what they call cross country mountain biking, which to me is just mountain biking. Um, I had, I had hiked, so I fell in love with mountain biking and trail riding because it was like you could cover 100 times the distance you could hiking in half in, in a quarter of the time. Like, if you go on a 20-mile hike, that could take all day for the average human being. Some, the average human being can't hike 20 miles. Maybe someone athletic, a 20-mile hike is all-day affair. On a bike, that's about, you know, an hour or two. Depend, you know, I'm sorry, two hours, three hours, depending on how fast you ride, right? Because right. you can average, even if you're a beginner, you can average seven miles an hour, you know, if you're just, even if you're a newbie, right? So it just, uh, I knew a lot of those spaces from just mountain biking and racing uh, mountain bikes with the Gone Riding series in Florida. I'm not sponsored by them. I just, that's the most popular series of mountain bike racing in Florida. And I kind of familiarized myself with all those places through these events. But then, because I had that slight background, small background in hiking, I knew that there were other places I could ride my bike that maybe weren't considered your standard uh, mountain bike attraction, trail attraction. And I kind of knew those spaces. And 
what I didn't know, you know, the, the connector areas, those are the areas I didn't know. So when I first decided to traverse the, the Ocala National Forest, um, because that's, that's where I started riding, like, okay, well, I wanted to ride to Santos. So I was like, well, why would I take pavement all the way to Santos? That seems foolish. Let me ride some dirt roads. And I kind of mapped that first route across the Ocala National Forest. And I did it. You know, people told me I was going to die and all these other people are so dramatic. It's fantastic. Dude, it is awesome. Uh, yes. Yes. I, I get, every time we do something, locals especially are like, I wouldn't do that if I was you. Exactly. The, the, a lot of fear. And I understand fear. the fear. It's, I guess, you know, that, that's survival instinct, right? Being afraid is a normal sur survival reaction of the, of the human body. We, we want to protect ourselves. We don't want to die. Right. That's that's in our genes to be a little apprehensive, a little fearful. But those those ways of connecting places, it kind of just became a thing. I and and I started I did it first locally in my neighborhood. And then I kind of just grew that circle. I made it bigger and bigger. So the first route I ever made was the Naked Indian route. It was we called it that because that was my nickname. I was going to ask where that name came from. Naked it's Indian. because my ancestors, my indigenous ancestors ran around naked. So when people would ask me, oh. Oh, yeah, you know, they would say, you know, you kind of, I could see where you have some Native American ancestry, some indigenous ancestry. Where are they from? And I would say, well, they're not like the Plains Indians. They were these naked Indians because that's what they were. And that's where it came from. You know, like just like a, a quick way to describe to someone, my, my, the first people who met Columbus were my ancestors. So just a quick little like aside on to, to describe where, where that nickname came from. Um, the second uh, route I ever made was the Death Loop. And I, I called it the death loop because my friend Rob Roberts scouted it with me. And when he finished the three mile segment, which is part of the, the old Paisley uh, St. Francis wagon trail, which I became obsessed with trying to like uncover this route. And once I finally did uncover it, it was so sandy that my friend Rob said to me, no one will ever ride this. This is terrible. No one will ever do this. And guess what? Every year for like the past 14 years, we've been riding it. And every year it just gets bigger. More and more people come to the death loop to the point where I, I kind of have to like only allow a certain amount of people in because it's kind of a guided ride and you can just, I can only do so much. I'm fortunate that I have a lot of people who have attended my events so I can recruit lieutenants like, Hey, you're going to help me. Like, you're going to help me. I'm going to volunteer you. You're going to help me. Right. And I'm able to do that because thankfully a lot of people have done the death loop with me so I can kind of recruit them. And, but back in those days when we would map a route, I would have to physically ride it in order to create the GPX, the route to share. I would have to ride it. And there was no way of drawing the route. I could look at it on a satellite image, but if I was going to ride it, I would have to literally measure the distance using like the little slider measure. Yeah. You know, like in three miles, I'm going to look for a left. In four miles, I'm going to look for a right. So that first route I, I did across the Ocala National Forest was off a of paper, like, okay, to the right, there's going to be some little weird trail. And I made notes for myself and had screenshots printed out and, and drawn up. It was tedious, like mapping, mapping a 60 mile route took like three months. Now I can map a 60 mile route due to technology and advancements and, and the desire to advance it in five minutes, three minutes. That's like big difference, three months to three minutes. It, the game changed when I was able to create my own routes, like draw them on paper, not on paper, but on the screen, and then send them to my GPS. When I was able to finally figure out that process, it's like the game changed. Like I, it, I was able to do things a hundred times faster. So then I made a route to connect the Ocala National Forest to Croom Forest because I felt those were the same ecological environments. They're both sand pine. And then um, that part of that route uh, eventually became part of the Huracan route, which is one of my most popular events. And part of that same route is also part of the coast to coast route, the, the cross Florida individual time trial route. And, and if you, you know, you kind of see how it all evolved. Eventually I was like, you know what, I could go all the way North. And thankfully because of the Florida wildlife corridor and that preserved area, I was able to go all the way North because I figured they had to have a way to protect the forest if there was a fire. So there have to be fire roads. So I kind of just um, looked at the Florida National Scenic Trail and then looked for fire roads close to it. And that was my first, doing it that way made it that I literally like mapped out the Florida Divide in an afternoon. I just sat on my computer and mapped it out. And then I'm like, okay, now time to ride it. So I went out and rode and, and it was just that mindset of knowing that they had existing corridors that needed to be protected 
So they had to have access, allowed me to see all these little connections between the green spaces to create these routes where now we can go all the way to Alabama, we can go all the way to the Keys, pretty much almost any town in Florida, I can connect and provide a route that's nearly 40% off road, not including, you know, bike path. If you had bike path, it's even more off road because thankfully uh, the state has done a great job of fostering that bike path program and making bike paths bigger and better all over the place. What, so what's cool about your story is I, I you know, I talked, we talked to so many people who, you know, they want to do something big like the tour divide uh, they do it, and then they want to do something bigger, and it and, and it just kind of goes in that direction. For you, it was almost like this pursuit of of a big challenge led into this whole other. You know, it, it wasn't the event, it, or it wasn't your personal achievement that that got you going. It was it was route building. It was creating the community around this and getting more people involved. And you kind of poured into that. Maybe you just saw that as here's where my skills are, and I love that because. There's so many people pursuing their own adventures without considering, like, how can I get new people involved? And it seems like you're, that's been your bread and butter, which I absolutely love, man. You, you've influenced and connected me personally with so many of my friends, and we've had so many unforgettable experiences on your routes. Uh, the, your influence has, has gone from people who come here, do your trips, and are so inspired. They go to other places, and they try to be, you know, the Carlos of that area and build routes and whatnot. So it's been really amazing to see. From your perspective, what, tell, us about, tell us about the first trip that you brought someone along with. Like, what was that like? What was your – were you apprehensive or, or at all, you know, worried about, you know, how's it going to go, how are they going to think about it? Take, a, take us through those early – kind of guided experiences because they're not guided like you're inviting your friends and inviting people but it's a cool feel it's not like every person's on their own the first trip i ever did um again we in the ocala national forest that i invited people and we started out right at the clearwater lake trailhead for the paisley mountain bike trail and uh we had packed our bags all i had was i had a map of the Florida trail, which I used to map out those fire roads. Cause remember I told you a lot of it at first was just parallel to, cause I knew they have a way to protect the woods. Right. And I had a recreational map that I bought of the Ocala national forest for four bucks at the visitor center. It was this, I, I'm sure I still have it. Um, and on that recreational map, what I did was I looked and the first thing I wanted to see was uh, Juniper Springs. So we rode from the Paisley Trailhead to, uh, to uh, Juniper Springs. And that's, we went up uh, through railroad grade and 595 and around the bombing range. You know, I'm sure I wasn't the first person in the world to like do it, to do the ride through there, but I'm sure, was, I'm sure I was the first person to advertise it that I did it. And we, um, we made our way to Silver Glen. And wow, if, I know you've been to Silver Glen. If you, as a Floridian, go to Silver Glen, like go tomorrow if you can, go this weekend if you can, get in your car, drive down there, don't be scared. Your mind will be blown if you've never seen it. Like it is just like this beautiful emerald magical place that you just don't expect to be in the middle of the big scrub because the big scrub is like a desert. It's so wide open and and majestic and big, tall roads. Like just, you did not, we did not know what we were getting into when we started going north. After Silver Glen, I was like, I wanna go see Hopkins Prairie. So we rode up to Hopkins Prairie. And then I was like, after Hopkins Prairie, I saw on the map all the way to the west was, um, was a spot called Lake Eaton. And they had a little hiking trail that took you down to the river and it said overlook. I'm like, I just love the fact that it says overlook. We're in Florida. What, what are we actually going to overlook, look over, you know? So we made our way across there and, and, and found that overlook. And it, was, you, it wasn't much of an overlook in height, but it was an amazing experience dropping into the sinkhole, basically, where it was and, and going to these little boardwalks. Because, again, we didn't know what we were doing. From there, I... I knew that I could go south and reconnect with the original route I had done to get across the forest. And that's what I did. We went and caught that route and rode all the way to Santos. On the way to Santos, when I stopped at the Marshall Swamp Trailhead to get water, I noticed that looking at their map right there, that that trailhead connected to a bike path. And that bike path would cut like 
20 miles of pavement. I was like, hey, guys, let's do this. And we that's the first time like we ever used that baseline, uh, that Marshall Swamp Trailhead to connect the baseline. What got me, I think, to the point where I'm at, where I'm able to have the opportunity to create these experiences for other people to enjoy and to provide some sort of, of influence or muse, be a muse for others. From the beginning was collaboration. It was me being so willing to listen to what people were telling me. Because, you know, when we were on that trip, it was four of us, five of us, and we were kind of just talking to each other like, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Like, I had to get their buy-in. So, so I, it was great to have that sounding board to, like, talk to people and then hear what they thought of my idea because we were literally just doing it on the fly. We didn't have no GPS file, no nothing. We were just going by the map. Those connections that we made that day eventually ended up part being, being part of that cross-Florida uh, individual time trial route. And some of the stuff we saw that day is part of the Florida divide. And, and some of the stuff that we rode that same day, that very first trip is part of the Huracan. And it's just kind of mentally and physically with pictures and with GPS data documenting these experiences, it, they all kind of created this butterfly effect that got me to where I am today. So that experience in that first group tour, and we made it to Santos and we were shelled and we ate like we've never eaten before. It was fantastic. And it was probably only a 70 mile ride, but still, it was just epic at that time because no one was doing that. No one was strapping stuff to their bikes and riding across the wilderness. Uh, no one had thought of it yet. And, and if people had been doing it, which maybe they were, they weren't talking about it. So being a sharing the experience was key, right? What, I mean, I tell people all the time, I have such a great opportunity to, to interact with lots of folks, but I don't take a, one second of it for granted. I always thank them because... It, without the people participating, being involved, showing these things attention, visiting these spaces, hiking those trails, paddling those waters, without those people interacting with the environment and creating these experiences that they also continue to share with their friends, it would be for nothing. There would just be lines on a map. They would just be uh, papers at a kiosk. Without the people participating and getting out there and getting involved and enjoying these spaces, it, it'd be nothing. So. With, I have to thank everybody because without their participation, there's, it would just be my crazy maps that no one yeah. would look at. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. If you know me, you know that I love the Florida Wildlife Corridor. What is that exactly? That is a network of contiguous lands that are connected that go all the way from the Everglades up to the Georgia and Alabama line. It's a continuous network of lands that animals use for migration. It encompasses over 40% of all of Florida, which equals 18 million acres. The good news is over half of that is already protected through conservation. The bad news is the other half, just under half, is threatened by roads and development. So the time to save this land is now, and that's why Live Wildly is so important. Live Wildly is an initiative to help bring awareness to and help folks take action on helping protect the Florida Wildlife Corridor so that we can ensure that Florida doesn't get totally developed in the coming decades. And Live Wildly's goal is to raise that public awareness to support the conservation of this Florida Wildlife Corridor. Because protecting corridors like this are not just good for the environment, it's crucial for the entire state's economy, local business, and ecotourism. You can follow them by looking up at LiveWildlyFL across all social media platforms. Go to LiveWildly.com for updates and how to enjoy and how to explore the corridor, or reach out to me if you want to go on one of my paddle trips. I put one together every eight to 10 weeks, and all of them take place within the Florida Wildlife Corridor. And I can't thank them enough for supporting this podcast because it's something that I spend my free time promoting. So thank you so much, and be sure to check out LiveWildly.com. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Be the naked Indian out there. <laughs> yeah. you know, just wandering around. Yeah. Aimlessly alone. Yeah. <laughs> you've obviously, you know, like you said before, you've gotten like exponentially better at building routes. Um, but but what what is it like for you to build a, a brand new route kind of when you started getting into it and started getting familiar, but not quite where you are now? Like, did you, do you have to work with landowners? Do you only stick to public, you know, spaces? Like, how did that go? Because cause there's a, I mean, that's hard stuff to determine sometimes. Like, I get confused as someone that's pretty familiar. It's like, can I go here? Can I not go here? Can I ride here? Like, the gate's closed, but is that just a vehicle? Or is that just me? You know what I mean? Like, how did you 
start figuring that out? And how much relationship building did it take with uh, with different landowners and whatnot? Um, the process that I use now is this process I use then. The the it all starts kind of like with an idea. And then I study all the information I can find on their websites regarding the maps. I also use a re, um, an atlas. I pull out the atlas. If the road's not on the atlas map, when I usually see, if I see a road is in green space, once I come up with just the basic foundation of the route, I go out and ride it. I ride every inch of it. And if I encounter issues, um, sometimes they can't be solved. Sometimes there is no one to talk to. Um, a lot of times, I don't know. I don't know how to be more transparent. A lot of times it's asking for forgiveness, not asking for permission. Just <laughs> saying, whoops, this line on this map said green space. I didn't know because sometimes um, some of the land managers or not the land managers, but the people who conceptualize the building or the layout or the management plan for the specific green space, they didn't think that someone would want to come in that way. Right. So it's okay to ask for an apology to, you know, to, to ask for forgiveness because I just opened up their mind to a possibility where they could maybe increase their usership because they want people to go out there, right? They want people to use these spaces. So uh, some, it's been a, it, uh, at the beginning, there was a lot of taking a lot of knocks. Like if you ever, if anyone here ever has the opportunity, and I highly encourage it to participate in something like the Huracan, you will have a sheet that you need to initial. And on that sheet, there's like 11 different things that I don't want you to do. And each one of those things is something I've gotten a phone call about and had to talk to somebody about. So um, a lot of it has been evolution, uh, realizing that my goal is for all this to be um, legitimate. So a lot of it has been when I get into a situation where I have to explain my choices has been working with those um, land managers to establish permission to do it. And generally speaking, I think, probably 9.9 .9 times out of 10, um, all these land managers have been very cooperative. Just a, a, a sorry and a thank you was more than enough. And then kind of getting their the idea of what what my intentions are from my voice, because they I don't meet them. I have met them face to face, but we don't start there. We start with a phone call. They're usually very accommodating. It just takes kind of some conversation. There's some stuff you can't do. But a lot of stuff you can do, and generally the maps have been accurate. There's been a couple of times where you know you end up in a slough or in a swamp because the map was that inaccurate in that way. But hydrology in Florida can change so much in, in so many different ways, and it's yeah. a, quite interesting understanding the hydrology in Florida. But still, generally speaking, it's it's been a pretty smooth process. Just kind of having the courage to not be afraid to ask. Uh, when it comes down, when it comes time to ask. You know, you mentioned something there that I think is really cool. And uh, it's, things can change so much in Florida. And as, as someone who, who was born and raised here in the woods, uh, grew up, I'm constantly blown away by new things I learn and new things I come across. And a little bit embarrassed sometimes about how little I feel like I actually know as someone who loves it and tries to get out there as much as possible, did it, does it, it, it and it, what that does is it, it makes me not want to explore in other areas, like other States, even other parts of the world that I know I love. It's like, there's just an endless amount of things to discover right here in my backyard. Do, do you feel that way? Do you feel like every time you go out or every time you plant something new, there's just something you hadn't seen? I, it's I do. Crazy. I do. I do. I, um, I think Florida is magical in so many ways. Um, what, what really fascinates me and what I really geek out on is knowing that below the Suwannee River, that that part of Florida used to be part of Africa. That blows my mind. And knowing that north of the Suwannee River, that part of Florida was never underwater, right? And then what else blows my mind is knowing that the Lake Wales Ridge was never underwater. So, you're, you know, you can dig in the sand all you want in Claremont, but you're not going to find any shark teeth in there. Not like yeah. you would if you were like digging like at Blue Springs and you could find shark teeth. You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. Right right next to the Lake Wells Ridge in Fort Meade. It's just like 10, 15 minutes away. There's all the shark teeth. I grew up on the Lake Wells Ridge in Frostproof. Yeah. So it, that all 
like that mental image in my mind of seeing what the Lake Wales Ridge looked like when it was just a, a chain of islands, that just blows my mind. I understand completely how you feel. Like it's hard for me to to want to explore other places because I keep finding new things, uh, you know, every every time that I that I get out there. It's just such Florida's truly special. And if if you don't know where to go, hit me up. I will help. It has made me think like when I, when I, I, cause I, I used to do a lot of cross country bike rides, like coast to coast, North to South. And people would always ask like, where's your favorite part of the trip? And I'd always mention something that people didn't expect. I remember my last cross country bike ride, people were like, what was the best part? This was 2020. I said, Ohio. And people were like, what? <laughs> cause Ohio, you know, is the butt of a lot of jokes, just like Florida is. And I'm like, it blew my expectations away with the small towns and the people and just the quaintness and like the wet, everything combined to be, be this amazing experience. Whereas of course I expect the Rocky mountains to be incredible and they are the places I wanted, you know, expected to be this way were amazing. The places I didn't kind of blew my mind and it's taught me and, and living here has taught me like anywhere is incredible. If you just are willing to explore it like you're doing but, you know, a lot of people know Florida as a pretty wild place with a lot of crazy things going on, a lot of crazy history. What are some stuff that you've come across with route planning and going out and maybe scouting some of this stuff? Have you have you seen anything that's just totally unexpected? And I don't even know what that could be, but everything from animals to people to just something you come across. What, what's some of the crazy things you've seen out there? Um, uh some of the stuff that I really like have found to be um, super special is finding springs that no one knows about. I love that. I've learned to like smell the sulfur water when you don't expect to smell it. And then hunting down that spring head and there'll just be a nice little pool of bright, uh, you know, green, greenish water just in the middle of nowhere. I love finding those little secret springs and I've gotten quite good at finding those. And then the first time I saw dry caves, like in the in the citrus and the Withlacoochee State Forest in the citrus unit, uh, the dry caves in Florida, the Peace Cave and Vandals Cave, and those places just blew my mind because I just didn't expect Florida to have dry caves. And I've secretly been spending the past like five years hunting down all the rapids in Florida and paddling them on my pack raft. That's been like my other passion uh, is hunting down rapids. And you'd be surprised how many rapids Florida has. I, I know of at least five but I'm always hunting down the rapids and, and those always impress me and fascinate me. Cause again, every, I guess everything I like that, I, that surprises me is the stuff that people don't expect you to be able to see here. And you, you have the pleasure of taking people for first time or first timers uh, out to see a lot of this stuff. And it's not just like, you know, they, they didn't know there was going to be a, a springhead. They, they've never seen Florida in this way. They've only been to the beach or they've only been to Disney World or only been bikepacking in other parts of the country. How how cool is it to introduce people to some of this stuff? Do you have a story or anything where you, maybe someone was, was really moved by one of your experiences? Um, man, I guess it's good that there are, there are a ton of stories. All I ever hear is people tell me that it's not what they expected at all. And uh, I have very few people who I've had a chance to interact with that don't fall in love with, you know, Florida after they ride uh, one of the routes that I, that I shared with them. I, it, there's no shortage of it. I mean, I think one particular story that stands out as of late was this ni nice lady. Um, I met her when she decided to take on uh, the Kings Road, which is my coast to coast a gravel route that I've been putting on now. This will be the fourth year we've been doing it. Um, she was telling me how one day she was on the With the Coochie State Trail um, and she encountered a, a gentleman who was on a bicycle who had a bunch of bags strapped to it. And when she asked him what he was doing, he told her that he was training for the Huracan. And then he started telling her all about the Huracan. And this lady who recently had some really sad stuff happen in her life. I won't get into it. Um, she, you know, whether she realized it or not, she was thirsty for an outlet. And that was her introduction to bikepacking. And, and interesting enough, in, she kind of did the reverse of what I did. In order to start preparing for bikepacking in Florida, she rode routes in other states 
like she uh, she went up and rode uh, parts of, of the TNGA and parts of the Vista route. Like she, it's interesting. She did it backwards. Like she could have just immediately jumped into my routes, but she actually started uh, in out of state to prepare for some Florida rides. And then uh, she she finished the King's Road. Uh, she um, she took on the Huracan this year. Like she literally got into the sport by meeting someone who was training for a ride. And there was an, another gentleman just this past weekend when we did the Dirt Devil tour, where we kind of visit all the underground springs over in that um, that Williston area and, and McNope area. Um, he had met um, this gentleman Tim who rides lots of my routes. She, he had met Tim while he was out riding, um, I believe, the Huracan route. At, met him at a campground, and he, after meeting Tim, he went out and bought a bike and bought gear, and he came to the Dirt Devil tour this weekend. Like literally, that interaction he had it inspired this guy enough to just start bike packing. And you know, I get so many stories like that. I think some of those stories are my favorite of how people, um, people kind of get inspired indirectly or directly. Like, uh, I'm sure you've heard of um, Piggy's Revenge. Oh, yeah, definitely. Ben, ben Myers has been getting me, trying to get me to go to that for a couple of years now. Well, well the organizer, Eric, uh -huh. was inspired to, to do that by riding the Naked Indian route with me. When he saw what I did in my town, he's like, hey, I could do that. And he went over there and started doing that. And those stories are, are, are really special to me, too, because I guess you know how they say you live your life forward, but you can only understand it backwards. So it's great for me now because when I look back, I can see how all these little trips and even my behavior when I was in my teenage years riding skateboard everywhere, I can see how all these little pieces fit together to get me to where I am right now. And then hearing how the, the sphere of influence that these events have had where other folks have gone out and created events, that, that's super special to me. And when they tell me, it's even more special because I don't for one second think it was because of me. But when they tell me it was, I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's really cool. That's that, cool. You know, I guess to them it's like oh well he's just a regular guy if he can do it i can do it and i love that like i am just the regular guy and if i can do it you can do it like the the, the what i do is is for everyone everyone's invited you know it, you don't have to be fit you just have to be willing you just have to have desire the biggest muscle you need to to take on any big challenge in life doesn't matter what it is whether it's bikepacking or just getting through that next project is just to want it it's the mental game Everything is 90% mental. Like you just have to be mentally, you know, strong. You don't have to be physically strong. Your body will do what your mind tells it to do. It might take you longer than it would take me or you, but you could still do it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you're at the point now that it, it seems like there's an event, like a couple events a month. Like how many events do you have at this point? And how do you manage it, manage it all? Because you don't do this full time. This is just what you do on the side. How, how do you balance this with work and family? And um, well, this this is what planning? I this is what I do full time. This is the only thing I do now. Um, for too many years, I tried to do too much, and uh, you know, life is all about balance. If you work too hard and you don't play enough, everything suffers, kind of thing. You know, so eventually, I got to the point where I worked four days a week on that. On, on at a regular job and then did every the rest of my time on samurai stuff and then eventually I, I was I was only working two days a week and then I'm like you know what I just need to to commit and what happens is in Florida this is the way my year looks like right uh, January 1st we begin the process of re-verifying all the routes how many events do I have probably six or seven group starts I'm sorry I don't have an accurate number on me I guess I could go through the list or you could just go to singletracksamurai.com and see it all there. And then lately, Six or seven what's, group starts. Yep. Yeah. And then, then we, we are slowly building more of a catalog of private tours or small group tours because that seems to be where, what people are most interested in right now is having the chance to kind of be in that smaller group. And some of it, we get a lot of people who it's their first time because it's a great opportunity to interact with veterans and see you know what what works for them and interact with me and see what works for me and kind of helps them figure out what what works for them because a lot of touring whether it's off-road touring on-road touring uh bike packing hiking any long process where you're kind of eat, eating sleeping and living off that mode of transportation 
the hardest part of any of that is figuring out what works for you because everybody's it's a super bikepacking is super individualized sport right same with hiking and same with ultra running and same with long distance paddling like it's all kind of a little bit figuring out what works for you and in order to to kind of get that that base or that you just kind of it's great to interact with other people so we've been growing our catalog of small group tours um i actually have a couple of new ones planned for this year it's super exciting um we're going up into the panhandle because i really love the panhandle area um the problem is is that summer's pretty miserable in florida in terms of being outdoors and not being in the water. In the summers, when we hit the water hard, we're paddling hard in the summer because it's just a great place to be in Florida is be in the water, right? So you kind of have a bikepacking season. It starts late September and it kind of runs to early May. And then in the summer, typically what I do once January, we start route verification, we get through season. So kind of mid-May, we spend the summer uh, doing a lot of riding, a lot of scouting, a lot of route verification. You know, We even do some bikepacking because guess why? Because my kids aren't in school. So it's easier for me to maybe leave them with mom for a day or two, you know, than it is during a school uh, year when I have to get them to school and, and get them fed and get them to bed and cook them dinner. You know, it's, it's easier in the summer. So although it's not the best time to spend your time in the woods, you know, if, if you're like a professional like I am, you can manage it. You just got to know what you're doing. So the summers we spend scouting and doing route verification, you know, doing the, what I call the good work. And then Come September, late September, we start bikepacking again. So that's pretty much what the year looks like. And then that season, yes, I'll be very busy. But during the summer, not not a lot of, of summer events uh, because of the fact that um, you can go touring in the summer in Florida, but it's probably best to like use your credit card and stay inside than it is to camp because the bugs are, are not that bad. You can manage mosquitoes with bug spray, but man, the ticks are off the chain. The horse flies is the real problem. And then the chiggers are ridiculous. So, you know, you know, you can't be in brushy stuff. You can go to maintain trails. Like you can still go hiking in the summer. Just hike on those trails that are, see a lot of traffic so that you don't end up in the tall grass and get ticks or chiggers. Cause those things are terrible. You know, you have to know. You've been building this for a decade and a half. It was your 15th naked Indian this year, naked Indian ride. The one that kicked it all off. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what are some things you did that helped you kind of get your life together to make the jump to do this full time? Because there's a lot of people that listen to this show that are that are on that path or they want to do this more and they want to start building it. It sounds like there is that grind for maybe a decade or more. Uh, but but I didn't actually know that you were doing this full time. What are some things you did that really helped to make that more possible for folks that are not quite there yet? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. I honestly, I think that the most important thing that folks should start at is have that kind of like, it's maybe it's just internal, but having like a general mission statement. Right. So from the beginning, if you break down the word samurai, it's transfers, it uh, loosely translates to, to, you know, servant serving. So from the beginning, uh, my first couple of years, maybe the first four or five years, I didn't charge anything. There was no money charged. Four or five years. Yeah. That's like a, that's like a college education of doing things for free. Yeah, it, it is. And I didn't, I just did it like that because I, I don't know. I just, I didn't know how to, I guess. I didn't, I never thought of it. I didn't think that it would become popular. I thought it was just going to be very, you know, just nobody wanted to do it, but thankfully people did. And it was actually the people who told me I should charge basically because they would collect like amongst themselves, they would collect money and then hand it to me at the start of the event. Like, thank you. And um, they would send me gift baskets and presents I would get the GPS in the mail, like, thank you for all your work. I'm like, oh, thanks. Like, that was their way of telling me that they had such a great time that they feel bad that they didn't get charged anything. So what I realized after years and years that I wasn't slowing down, I was speeding up. And I kind of adopted the model of something like adventure cycling, where they sell the route information. 
so that you can go out and experience these adventures. And that's the model I adopted. But the core principle, and let me get back to the main point, was that you kind of have to have that foundation. So Single Track Samurai to Serve was founded on generosity. It was founded on being generous. And that's like my core principle. So have that core principle. Ask yourself as, a, as an entrepreneur, what's your core principle? My core principle is to be generous because I believe in putting out that energy, I'm going to get it back, right? And that's exactly what happened. And then my second core principle is to be fair. I want to be fair. I don't want to be crazy. I want to be reasonable. I struggle with that because at the, at the end of the day, this, this all, all this works takes resources and it takes um, commitment. And um, I can't feed my kids on, you know, gifts and, uh, and well wishes, right? So I had to come up, basically make it up on how to create a, a, a system of, of collecting some sort of compensation for what I'm providing. Generally speaking, when you participate in an event, you are paying for the information that you can use on your own. I have provided you that information. You have provided a fee that I consider reasonable. Our exchange is done. Sometimes I have to add more because I am required to have insurance for some events and I'm required to pay permits. So we share that cost as a group, right? Me and all the people, we share the cost. So it was kind of, you know, figuring out what I needed to do. But my core principles is, I think, something that everybody needs to have when they decide that they want to try to make a living off something they're passionate about is what are your core principles? Identify those core principles and then stick to them. The final principle, it seems, it seems uh, really silly and obvious, but, you know, be transparent, be clear, be honest, for lack of a better term, be transparent, be 100% clear. I'm doing this because of this and give, and give people the choices. I am so good at giving people choices. If you join any of my group events, there might be two or three routes because you have a choice of what you want to do when you're out there. To me, what's important is that they have the, the, the chance to experience these outdoor spaces in whatever way they choose to experience it, be it as fast as possible or be it, you know, as whatever they, how much time they want to take. And figuring those things out really gave me the direction to make the decisions to where I am now. And, but the work is not done because at some point I would like to establish a nonprofit that would look after my routes, kind of like the Florida Trail Association does for the Florida Trail. And all these other places do for, for other systems, like um, the Appalachian Trail Association, you know, looks after the Appalachian Trail and the Colorado Trail Association looks after the Colorado Trail. Um, I would like to establish a nonprofit that will look after the routes and maybe um, in that scheme, that five-year plan, because that's like my five-year plan, um, we'll figure out a, out a way to, to finance it fairly. And, and you know, and I think even when that evolution happens, and I know it will, because that's where I'm going to push this thing, it's still going to be founded on those core principles, you know, generosity, um, transparency, uh, fairness, um, inclusivity, you know, those are all parts of the core principles. Anybody who wants to ever be successful at anything needs to make sure that they understand their own core principles. They could vary. They could change. There's actually no wrong answer for what those core principles are. Just don't lose sight of them no matter what happens. And persistence, obviously, enough said. You have to stay the course. Keep your eyes on the prize. The key to riding good, being good at technical single track riding is look where you want to go. And that's the same with life. Like, look where you want to go. Like, your vision should be where you want to be, not not where you don't want to be, because what happens when you're riding that narrow ridge? If you look to the left, guess what's going to happen? You're going to end up going down that ridge. Go so you got to keep your eyes on where you want to go, right? And that's, and that's just good life philosophy. Look where you want to go and, and keep that focus and, and stay the course, stay persistent. Even if you're pushing, you're still moving forward. Love that advice. And yeah, man, you, you've been at it for so long. And when I did a trip with you a couple years ago, I think you charged 30 bucks and it was two nights of camping, three days of riding. There was pizza involved in that. And it was a he heck of a deal. I don't understand why there aren't more. You really make it approachable for folks who are new to it. it. It felt very, yeah, very approachable. And it was an absolute blast. Yeah. Having folks feel guilty that this is such a valuable experience. I should be giving you more. That's a good feeling. That's a good, that's a good position to be in. I, I, I love that. 
Um, you know, I know you and I are both huge fans of the Florida Wildlife Corridor and what they're building and what they're trying to do with protecting nearly half of Florida to be wild lands and in designated uh, conservation areas. Um, how have you seen the route building change over the last 10, 15 years? Have you made, has it been, you know, things disappearing at a rate from, you know, being on the ground level, looking at it all every year, going and checking these routes, seeing houses getting closer. Have you noticed that? And also why, why is this corridor and this concept so important for folks that just have maybe haven't experienced it like you have? Yeah. Um, that first map of that, that I saw that was attached to the documentary about the Florida wildlife corridor and how important it was for the Panthers really was the basis, like the, the, the blueprint for building the Florida divide all the way to Alabama, that whole Florida wildlife corridor thing wouldn't have, was the inspiration for me to know that it was possible to build the Florida divide. Thankfully, for me and in my experience and through the work of, you know, persistent individuals and, uh, and the, the works of our legislators where they're protecting the corridor, I've thankfully have seen improvements. I've seen addition of places. I've seen more opportunities. Like there's just that recent acquisition in Arbuckle has me like, Ooh, is there going to be anything good in there? Like, cause I always like to add side trips. Like, Hey, we could go visit this place or that place. Uh, those things you see in those corridors are very important to me. To me, it's I've only had the opportunity to see it improving over the couple of years. Uh, but in my hometown, they keep clearing land for, you know, building apartments and more people coming in. So that growth is happening everywhere. But thankfully, I, thankfully, the Florida Wildlife Corridor and through the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act of 2021 has done a great job of acquiring more stuff. So I've only seen it improve and I hope it improves even more like do we still need to drop bombs over by Avon Park? Can we just like take over that whole land? Dude, I would like to be Fort Christmas. I would like to be Fort Christmas to be part of the Florida Divide again, but they they're still dropping bombs in there. Do we still need to do that? Can't we just like have a computer maps? Like, can't we practice somewhere else? Yeah, some simulators. <laughs> so, dude, Jordan and I took a group of like fifteen down Arbuckle Creek a couple months ago from Arbuckle, like Arbuckle to Istapoga. And it, the the left side, the, the the east side is all the Avon Park bombing range, and the right side is a bunch of ranches under conservation easements. And the whole two days, bombs and airplanes and just tanks going through the woods. It, it sounded like a war zone and equipment. And I was like, "Dang, what is going on over there?" And it was absolutely stunning. One of the most beautiful paddles I've ever done. Twenty five miles of bliss, but. Yeah, that whole area is still getting a ton of activity. And I, I grew up, my backyard is basically backs up to that. And yeah, uh, yeah heard it my whole childhood. Unreal. Yeah, I would love for that. I have had the opportunity of riding through that, that property. And Which it is, is hard to get into. It is nice. It is very nice. One of the first scouts I ever did, we traversed that property. They had the wildest fence I've ever seen. It was five feet tall. And then it had a five foot gap in the middle. And then it was five more feet on top i guess they left that gap so that the deer could jump through deer do jump through there i've seen deer on the 10 foot fences not make it that's the first place i've ever seen a florida panther was the bombing range yeah the first time i i saw a panther was up in san Velasco, that far north so the, kudos to the corridor because that you know if the corridor wasn't there that wouldn't be possible Man, that is so crazy. Well, oh, Carlos, one more question. I want to go back to it because I, I have a feeling there's more here. You know, Florida is a crazy place. Florida man, you know, is is legendary. What are what, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen scouting out a route, verifying a route, just being out there? What have you come across? It's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I just saw that. Um, Natural or not? Let's just put okay. it that way. Some of the well. A cars flipped over in the middle of a wildlife area just people like i don't know how they, i don't even know how they flipped over the car um that's pretty that's been some of the wilder stuff i've seen um i always like uh, finding the creek shipwrecks when i'm paddling seeing boats like oh my god there's a whole boat down there like how did that happen i'm always curious about how some of those things happen um i think one time when i was 
when I was scouting for the Florida Divide, I asked a I asked a man if if he knew where there was a hotel. And before I could get a word out, he he told me he had no money. I'm sorry, I don't got any money. He thought I was a bum, <laughs> so I must have really looked rough. Um, the first time I went to the Sasquatch Research Center and talked to uh, the the their on staff hunter, that was that was pretty interesting. Just the stories he told me. Um, the first time I ever rode like down Loop Road um, into the backside of the Indian Reservation there, and I just first of all didn't know there was going to be an Indian Reservation there. And second of all, it was very interesting observing the way that they build their houses. Um, just you can tell that they've been interacting with that part of the world like all their lives because their houses are built not for when water is low, but when when the high water is coming. So like they're ready uh, to for the flood because they live in the swamp. They know. I think my my God, the first time I ever saw um, a big cypress and. Um, and the bats and how big the bats were and and just how different that part of Florida looked from everywhere else. To me, it, it made me really think of like, oh, this is what probably what Africa looks like, right? Because I've never been to Africa. And it, it's just the, those things have, those are kind of like the standouts when I think of, of things that I've seen. Uh, the first time I interacted, I, I stopped at Buffalo Tiger. And um, this was a long time ago. This was like 12 years ago. And... Um, the, the elder was there, the guy who, I guess, he's Buffalo Tiger himself was there. And he was asking me questions in his uh, native uh, Miccosukee language, whatever it is. I don't, I don't know the language. I'm sorry, I don't. Um, and then his, his daughter was translating for me. He was like, he would say some things. And, I, you know, I, you know I, 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 I'm an anthropologist. That's what I got my degree in. So I, I knew he was speaking an indigenous language. And then she would translate. And basically the first question was like, you got here all the way by bike, you know? And then the second question was, why is your bike so dirty? And then when I told him why it was so dirty, where I had come from, he's like, his response was like, you're crazy. <laughs> it was so funny. It was such an iconic conversation. Like he's calling me crazy. His name is Buffalo Tiger. <laughs> I'm yeah, crazy. <laughs> I'm the crazy one. You're Buffalo Tiger. Yeah, that was the leader of the uh, Miccosukee. He was born in 1920, I'm reading, and died in 2015 yeah so 95 years old yeah i had a chance to uh, interact with him indirectly through a translator i know i didn't even know it was anything but i mean i felt honored just that he was asking me questions i'm just a guy on a bike you know i had my krampus so it had really fat tires so it really caught his eye you know, he'd never he'd never seen a bike with that fat a tire on it you know that three inch tire was like he was like what the heck is this you know it really caught his curiosity Man, the adventures, dude, the adventures. I, I mean, I guarantee you getting ready for these routes is half the fun, just like being out there on your own. And you kind of, it's cool because you kind of get to experience yourself, you know, that that solo adventure, you know, fuel the soul and also the, the community aspect. I'm finding both of those are equally important to fuel. I've been so fortunate in my, you know, 15 years of, of traveling by bike throughout the state that all I have ever had the chance to interact with have been just the kindest, most interesting people, just sincere. You know, I kind of let go of what maybe their appearance was and let them just communicate with me any way they wanted to. And I've just only encountered nice people, generous people. I can't tell you how many times I've been invited to stay somewhere. I can't tell you how many times, you know, someone has offered me a cold drink on the side of the road, you know, just people in Florida and, in the areas I've been and the chances I've had to interact with them have been uh, just so kind. I can't say enough. Uh, have no fear. The hardest part of any big adventure is just getting to the start. That's it. Once you start, it's easy. You're going to eat. You're going to travel, however it is. And then you're going to sleep. And then the next day you get up and you do it all over again. And, and it's, that's easy. It's, it's basic human li living. It's as nomadic as you can get, right? Life is hard. Like every day is hard, you know, juggling a thousand responsibility and a thousand things. That's difficult. Getting to the start of an event, preparing, making sure you're physically ready and able. That's difficult. Starting the challenge and getting going. That's difficult. But once you're gone, it's easy. Everything is super simplified. You, know, you make it as complicated as you want, but it's easy to eat, sleep and travel. However it is, whether you're walking, you're paddling, you're biking, sure, it's going to have its challenges, 
but it's not more challenging than day-to-day life. <laughs> oh, man. oh, man. Well, Carlos, that's, I'm going to wrap it up right there. Thanks for jumping on. This Thank is you. So cool. Thank you so much. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.